You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Catherine Cahill, president and CEO of the Mann Center for the Performing Arts in Philadelphia. Catherine, welcome to the show. Laura, it's a delight to be here. I'm thrilled to be joining you and all of your listeners today and looking forward to our conversation. Well, I'm extremely excited to talk to you about this because, uh, you know, you and I just had a chance to meet a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago, actually. But I have been a huge fan and patron of the Band Center for years and years and years here in Philadelphia. So before I gush all over and talk about what kind of fun I've had with you and at the Man Center, give us your official elevator pitch. 30 seconds or so. What's the Man Center? Well, the Man Center for the Performing Arts is one of the nation's premier outdoor amphitheater summer music festivals situated in historic Fairmount Park. We operate from May till about October. We have over 200,000 folks coming through our gates, hearing international artists of great acclaim. We also have a very in-depth arts and education program and have a serious and deep commitment to our own community. Couldn't have said it better myself, although I would have said a lot more, frankly. I'm impressed you got it all into that short 30 seconds. I mean, I have had so much fun. It is an amphitheater, which makes it a whole different world. And to be able to see everything from the Philly Pops to groups like the Gypsy Kings to troops of various sorts of dance and, and even student performances and the National Symphony and the National Choral Arts Society, everything and anything in between has come through the Man Center. And I've been there for an awful lot of it. And there's nothing like hearing the orchestra playing live while you're watching fireworks for the 4th of July and things. And I have to say of, of all, and this will show you what kind of cultural world I come from, I think one of my favorite experiences was gosh, probably close to 20 years ago, I had just moved to Philadelphia and my parents came into town and my brother was here and we went and we saw, I believe the show at the time was called Bugs Bunny on Broadway. <laughs> Sure, it was. <laughs> and it was a gigantic screen above the stage. And was it the Philly Pops Orchestra? Philadelphia Orchestra, no doubt. It was the Philadelphia Orchestra. Okay, so that was playing the soundtrack to all the favorite shows from the Ride of the Valkyries to whatever else in the Barber of Seville. It's so much fun just to have those nostalgic moments, but hear the most perfect live orchestral performance you could possibly imagine. You know, who, who expects to hear that while having this walk down memory lane with Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes? But really, Terrific, terrific fun. I have to tell you, Laura, I love these stories. We hear this all the time. The magic that happens at the man, music under the stars, the memories that people share and carry with them. We hear about young people having gone to concerts with their grandmothers or grandparents and people who've gotten engaged at the man. I mean, the stories are extraordinary. And it, it runs the gamut from the great Philadelphia Orchestra, for whom the Man Center was built, by the way. So it's one of the mm. best acoustical outdoor amphitheaters in the country for that very reason. But we have artists from all genres and people just love the man. And it's such an important summer experience for just all of our region to have. And invariably, somebody has to tell you that wonderful story that just makes your heart sing every time you hear it. So I, I'm always grateful to say it's music to my ears when I hear these kinds of stories. <laughs> yes, yes, literally and figuratively in many ways. So is if this isn't it, what is your favorite part of your job and why? 
Wow, that's a great question. So I, I love people. And the great thing about the Man Center is I deal with so many different groups of people all day long. And for me, there are no two days that are alike. So whether I'm, you know, at the venue itself, dealing with all the people that are there, whether it's our audiences or our artists or our staff or you name it, or our main administrative offices, which are in Center City downtown, because there's not enough room, believe it or not, at the Man Center for everybody. Wow. Further, the Man Center was never built to be a year-round facility. So we actually close it down in the winter and the water gets taken out of the pipes. And basically, we have one person out there overseeing the entire campus from a security and safety standpoint. Wow. So we're back in town. and so. You know, my job is so great because as the CEO, it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle every day. What pieces do I have to move around? What's the image I'm trying to create with all those different pieces and with all the different people I have the privilege and the blessing to work with? Um, no two days are alike. No doubt. No doubt. And in doing all of this, what's coming up next? What's something that's new? We're, we're finally opening a new season post-COVID and now that the spring and summer are upon us finally What's happening in with the Man Center specifically or the industry overall? And how do you have to be mindful of your communication around it? Because obviously as CEO, you kind of have to talk to everybody. Well, if you and I had had this conversation pre-pandemic, I might have a slightly different answer for you, right? No doubt. So here we are in an unknown. And truly, if anybody tells you there was a playbook written for this, they're fibbing. <laughs> there is no playbook written for this. And in our industry, frankly, we were the first to close down and frankly, almost the last to open. Okay, in the performing arts. All right. Wow. Up to three months ago, we didn't even know if we were going to be open. And that's because you can't make, I'll use the word, the math work, really, hmm. if you have too much social distancing. So stay with me. We have 4,500 seats under cover. So when you have to have six foot social distancing between every seat, it dramatically diminishes your capacity. All right. Sure. And at one point, the lawn wasn't even eligible to be open. So you can't actually put enough artists on stage or enough people in the house to make it financially viable to open up and carry all the costs associated with it. So up to three months ago, we weren't even sure we were going to be open. Right. And then when we started to examine more and more of the rules that were changing, by the way, every day. So we would follow the health codes and, and all the safety regulations issued by the city, which, by the way, didn't always comport with the state. The state had a different set of rules. Right. Mm. We started to figure out we could do a soft opening. And so by that, I mean, we were able to accommodate certain types of artists and certain types of audiences with a whole host of very specific safety protocols that we had to follow. And so we had a soft opening in May and we had the Opera Company of Philadelphia, Opera Philadelphia, come to the man for three nights and we did a 90 minute version of Tosca. Who knew? Wow. It was actually conceived to be able to be done in an intermissionless fashion with an orchestra socially distanced on our great stage. We have the largest stage of its size in the region. And it was done in a sort of pseudo concert format mm. with the chorus singing in the balcony and a socially distanced audience of only about 500 people. Oh. So we started to learn to adjust to the conditions that we were given. But as far as when the really large rock and roll shows come through, they weren't going to come through because they need full capacity in order to justify going out on the road for the expense of putting a national tour together. Sure. So we were in this sort of hybrid moment of, okay, how long can we be open for soft opening, accommodate all the restrictions from COVID, make sure we were keeping everybody safe because that was our first priority. And if we couldn't do it, we wouldn't be open. And then trying to then monitor like minute by minute what was happening with all the codes. And so by May 11th, which was an important day, the city of Philadelphia said that by June 11th, a magical one month later, that social distancing would no longer be required for outdoor venues like the man. So that was a game changer. And so now we've been able to pick up some talent to come across our stages, but not the full breadth and depth of what we are accustomed to seeing. So we have a bit of a, a hybrid 
hybrid season, a Band-Aid season, if you will, because we weren't even sure we were going to be open. But we're thrilled to be open. We're thrilled now that the social distancing rules and still a safe environment we have to continue to provide allows us to bring more artists to the table and to our stages. No doubt. I can imagine where if you're trying to do a rock concert or something a little bit more along those lines, having, you know, an audience in an amphitheater of 150 people or so kind of loses something in the experience. It doesn't translate quite the way people are looking for, whether it's for the band, for the audience, or for the the venue itself. I think everybody's brand reputation and experience kind of is missing something. No doubt about it. And so we, we take those kinds of things into account as well. And so you're absolutely right. Timing is everything in this case. And so we are lucky that we're seeing more artists now booking for the latter part of the summer. August, September, even early October. But I can tell you, we're very pleased with the 2021 season. We're delighted to be open and have artists on our stages and audiences coming. But 2022 is going to be gangbusters. We're going to have a season like we've never seen before. So we're really excited. Can you give a little sneak peek who's on the agenda, who's on the docket so far? Oh, if I said that and then they pull out, I can't. So you'll have to just wait. Oh, bummer. Okay. Your listeners will have to trust me on this. I promise you that I will not disappoint. Okay. We will not disappoint. Well, at the end of the at the end of the show, we're going to give some websites for people to go and check check out. So and there I assume you can go in and see where there are tickets available, at least to for some extent, if not necessarily out another year for the remainder of this current season. Yeah, we have quite a few shows on sale now. We'll be adding a few more. And we do have a couple of shows on sale for next year, but not many. So that is not a reflection of really what next year is going to look like. But we'll be starting to roll out a lot more in, in the fall, actually, this coming fall for next summer. That's exciting. It All is. right. So at the end, stick around, everybody, because we're going to give you the location where you can go to find out what shows are available at the moment. Because, look... We're all ready to get out and to have another uh, taste of normalcy, as it were. And this is the best flavor of normalcy you're going to find. So you definitely don't want to miss out what's on the agenda here. Now, in your role, of course, everything we've been discussing is how we've been responding to what's been happening insofar as having to adjust for the regulations and the rules that change every 20 minutes one way or another for you know, good, bad, and ugly. But who do you need to influence in your role? Well, as I said earlier, there are a lot of people that I have the blessing of interfacing with. So whether it's my board of directors, the artists that we have, our guest artists, whether it's funders who are very important to our philanthropic mission, donors, of course, my fantastic and stalwart staff who are amazing every day and twice on Sunday. Yeah. And of course, our audiences for the reason that we, we come to work every day is to satisfy and to provide enrichment and, and artistic experiences at the highest level of excellence for our audiences. So I have a whole lot of different stages stakeholders that I interface with, not to mention, I serve on about four or five other boards now in the city in Mm. different ways and capacities. So I have that whole world to contend with. And also all of my, what I'll call cultural brethren, who are my counterparts at the orchestra or the opera company or the ballet or other civic or other civic important organizations. And then because we're in a city owned building on city property, there's all the relationships with all of our elected officials that are very important also to the man, whether it's the city, the state, or the federal level, quite frankly. So there's the large pool of people all day long that I interface with. And it's interesting. You have to really learn how to shift from one moment to the next and be able to understand who that audience is. No doubt. No doubt. And you mentioned something that I think is important in that of all the various amphitheaters that there are in the country, I mean, we're familiar with certain big ones like Los Angeles and and whatnot as well. But this is the only one, if I'm not mistaken, that's actually in the city proper, in the 
confines of the city region. Isn't that not correct? Well, that's almost correct. You mentioned L.A., correct. So and actually, speaking to your earlier question, then there's all of my colleagues who run sister venues like the Man. So the Hollywood Bowl, to your point in L.A., is the only other major summer music festival of our caliber in an amphitheater setting in a city proper. The others are outside cities in beautiful sylvan settings, resort settings, Saratoga Performing Arts Center, the Wolf Trap Performing Arts Center, Ravinia Festival outside of Chicago, among others. And I'm talking about the nonprofits that provide cultural programming along with contemporary popular programming. So, yeah, the man is really, really exceptional in that we're all of what, you know, if there's not a lot of traffic, 20-minute drive from Center City, maybe 20, 25-minute drive from parts of the main line. So we are incredibly accessible in a beautiful, spectacular historic park. Most other cities would give their eye teeth, including New York City, to have something of this caliber, and they don't have it. Right. And our actual history harkens back to the Dell on the east side of the city, where the original concert started in 1930 and the old band shell that was there. And so, I mean, this is a city that has had a long and reputable history of understanding that it's important to have summer cultural programming for the people. And the man is for everyone. We have something for everyone. Yes. And we are accessible. We are informal. Like I said, an evening under the stars, nothing more magical. Price points are reasonable depending on where you'd like to sit. So sure. really, there is no other place like the man at all with its natural beauty and its fantastic acoustics. And there's not a bad seat in the house. There's That's for sure. spectacular sight lines from wherever you're seated and the acoustics are really quite fine. So it's pretty special. And Philadelphia is really blessed to have something of this magnitude and of this caliber. Absolutely. The fact that it is in the city proper, you mentioned, of course, having to interface then with the elected officials and understanding the nature of the politics and the the requirements and all those kinds of things. How is it different interacting with city officials as opposed to just your other typical business stakeholders? Of course, there's a board, there's investors, there's clients, there's employees, et cetera. But how is it different working with the elected officials? Well, you know, it's interesting. At the end of the day, we're all people. And you know, we all come to the table with the things that we care about. And I'm happy to say that the current city council, many of them, actually have an affinity for the arts and actually do care that a healthy city and a thriving city has a vibrant and well-funded arts sector and arts community. We haven't always had that, depending on who you're talking to. But I think right now with who's sitting in city council in certain seats, we have more of that. And we're grateful for that because really, you know, Arts and culture, architecture, things of that nature define us as a society, define us as a civilization, leave the marks behind when we're judged and looked at through the lens of history. So, and certainly with the man, because we have programming for just about every taste, depending on who you're speaking to, some people have a particular interest in, say, R&B. Some people have an interest in middle of the road. Some people really care about classical music. So sometimes it's interesting when you're talking to different elected officials, what is it that really is important to them? But what I always find that's important to them, especially where we are in West Philadelphia, is what are we doing for our community and for our young people? Mm. And that is a universal question and the right one to ask. And we're able to answer that fully and with great satisfaction. And so from that perspective, that's a pretty consistent commentary that we can have together. Sure. Regardless of what kind of music you do or don't like. Right, right. And I think that's such an important concept that you try to figure out, okay, what is in this constituency's best interest? What do they want? And if they are representatives of the city overall or of a particular region, it's who do they need to influence and how can you help that whole, I regularly go back to the Jerry Maguire philosophy of help me help you, right? So you want me to do this or I need to 
you to do that. We know that you need to have more programming for the children in your neighborhood, in your district, in your region. So great, let's figure this out and let's have it be an educa- a musical education program, a cultural arts education program. And I assume that helps there to, to grease the wheels a little bit and help everybody win. Well, that's a really good analogy with Jerry Maguire. You know, I always believe that you have to know who your audience is. Yes. And you have to do your homework. And what is it that is important to them? So if I'm going to go talk to a city council member who we're not in their district, but I happen to know we're serving a number of young people who are in senior citizen centers or we're hiring artists from their community, I have all that data ready Great. to say, here's how we're impacting your district. Because all politics is local. You know, what are you doing for my district? How are you helping my constituents? What are you doing for my neighborhood? And so for us, we know that. We have that data. We're very data-driven. Once somebody said to me, oh, what is the expression? Oh, in God we trust, all others bring data, right? <laughs> Cute, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So we do do our homework, and that's important, so that when we are in those settings where we do want to make our case, as it were, we are prepared, and that's a very important part of our work. Know your audience, yes. Know your audience. Yep. The data don't lie. They are just there. They can be interpreted, perhaps, but as long as you make them say what you need them to say. Well, yeah, the data is the data, and then you have to put it in context for the audience that you're reaching, exactly. Of course, I think it was Mark Twain to give you a second quote who said there are three kinds of lies lies damned lies and statistics so <laughs> lies damn lies and statistics i haven't heard that i like that i believe so so there at least and if it wasn't twain well i just gave him credit so he can come ah. back later on and tell me otherwise but <laughs> fair enough so but there's data in there somewhere and we're going to make them work for us now in communicating with all these different audiences from the public servants to business owners and investors etc mm-hmm. have you had to learn to shift your style and have you Felt like it was harder to adapt to connect with certain stakeholder groups more than others. Has authenticity ever been a challenge? For me, authenticity isn't a challenge because I think pretty much what you see is what you get. And I've always been that way. I do think, however, when I'm going into a setting and either it's unfamiliar or the issues at hand are not something I am knowledgeable about, right? There's a lot of learning to do. And so when I'm in a setting where I don't have those comfort zones or I'm, I have to really put my antenna up and really listen carefully and observe what's going on around me and try to figure out where do I fit into this conversation, if at all, right? And it's been fascinating serving on a number of boards throughout the city now and listening and learning about the people around me and the issues for the organizations that question nonprofits, almost all of them. And sometimes there's an area that I'm not knowledgeable about, but I'm going to learn. And so to me, that's where you learn to grow as an individual. In those settings in particular, where your comfort zone may not be 100%. So you really have to be on your game to try to figure out what you're into and make sure that you're doing a lot of good listening. Listening is is always step one, I think, especially when you realize that you don't have the knowledge that everybody else is. One of my you know, MOs for a long time in this field is I want to surround myself with much smarter people, whether it's my staff, my board, whomever. I really want to be surrounded by smarter people who know more than I do because I'm going to learn from them. And invariably... And not all cases, but certainly in our world, you know, most of the areas are expertise that have, you know, knowledge and working experience that I don't have. I mean, I I would not know how to fly a opera set in the manhouse, but my production people sure as heck know how to load in a great opera company. When I'm talking to our architects on our master planning, I'm not a city planner. I don't know a lot about storm water management, for example, but I'm learning. 
But I don't need to be the expert on that. I have to make sure I've surrounded myself with the people who have the expertise to get the job done honestly, fairly, straightforwardly, with no drama, preferably. Yeah. And um, Just keep the drama for the stage. Well, that's my answer. No, no, I always say I'm, no divas are welcome on my team. That Leave the drama and the divas for being on stage. Yes. We have a lot of work to do. Yes. That's where they belong. They belong on stage. We're not on stage. Let them have their say and let us do our job. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, with the idea of surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you, most leaders would agree that, of course, that goes without saying. And yet, I think for many, when you do rise to that position and realize that you're at the top, there's this feeling like you're supposed to know more or at least as much as everybody else. And that shows such an inherent internal confidence to feel like, no, I don't expect to know more than everybody else. And I want people who are smarter than I am. And I'm okay with that. This is the normal place to be. I think a lot of people can succumb to imposter syndrome or succumb to other concerns of inferiority that can tank leadership in that role if they're not comfortable with that philosophy of, of wanting to know that your experts in your other leadership roles who report to you are the best in that role and not you for a very specific reason. Well, I've always said if we're having a dialogue, it can be with a senior staff member, it can be with an outside consultant, it can be with any of my staff, anybody. If you don't know the answer, it's okay. You can say, I'll get back to you. That is for me not a signal of weakness. And, you know, when I was younger in this field, I used to think, oh, my God, I have to have all the answers because when I go to my boss, I better have all the answers. No, I'd rather you say, you know what, that's a great question. I don't have that answer. I'll get back to you versus starting to, like, try to make it up because anybody worth their weight and salt is going to know when you start talking out of both sides of your mouth that you don't know what you're talking about. You're better off. Mm -mm, I'll get back to you. And that's fine. In my book, for me, that's a much better side of a, of a good manager that I'm dealing with who has the confidence to say that to me. And I'm like, much prefer that than a half-baked answer. You can tell when somebody's building the plane mid-flight, trying to figure out what their own point is or <laughs> scrambling to try to figure out what an answer might be. Or the answer they think you want to hear. No, no, no. I need to just, I need the facts. And I need it from your point of view and your experience. And if you don't have that answer or the piece of information that's part of the fact you have to go and get, go get it. Yes. It's okay. Yes. It's really okay. Yeah. Well, Kathy, this brings us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. And this is your opportunity to speak directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence for themselves. How would you like to challenge our audience today? Well, it's a word I used earlier. I'm going to bring it back. Leave the drama behind. Mm. If you want to concentrate properly at work, there just can't be any drama or stress, frankly, weighing you and distracting your head. It's not productive. And, and if you go into an argument on the eve of going to work with, say, your significant other, please hope by the morning you've had some ability to resolve it so that you can get your head back in the game. And emotional intelligence is part of what we're talking about here, right? You know, and, and I did a little homework on this because I was fascinated by the question. And it says here, according to helpguide.com, emotional intelligence is built by reducing stress. Emotional intelligence is built by reducing stress. Hmm. The ability to resolve conflicts positively and with confidence will help reduce your stress level. Interesting. This will lead to a more productive day. So leave the drama behind. I used to always, as I said, you know, no drama, no divas allowed. I've now connected the dots to the emotional intelligence piece, which makes real sense to me. So leave the drama behind is my recommendation for that 24-hour fix that you need. Okay. So be mindful of whatever has been going on behind the scenes and do not bring it to your workplace. Leave it at home. If possible. If at all possible. You know, we're all human. We're human beings, not human doing. Right. But it's important if you can. 
Yeah. And if nothing else, recognize where you maybe you still are carrying something and you need to figure out how to let it go. If it's if it may be influencing a conversation that you have or your ability to focus at work, at least recognize that it's getting in the way and then do something to change your state, change your mindset, just go for a walk, get a glass of water. Correct. You know, do jumping jacks or something. You scream into a pillow. And don't send that email when you're upset. Yes. Because when you write it, don't send it. Wait, if it's not incredibly time sensitive, that has to have an answer like in the next nanosecond. If you've written something in the heat of the moment, don't send it. And if you can then step back, look at it an hour later or in the next morning, I promise you, you'll rewrite it. And something that goes right along with that, that I am much better remembering to tell other people than remembering to do myself, I confess, is when you are drafting that email, do not put the, don't fill in the two. Person's name in it because variably it'll go there when you're in the midst of typing something. You'll be like, oh no. Right. Right. Been there. Or you it. just go on autopilot, you finish it and you hit send before you go, wait, I didn't want to send that yet. Too late. Too late. Now, maybe depending on what you're using, you might be able to retract it if you you know unsend it but unlikely and usually not before you realize it and then it's too late so yeah that's one of those ouch moments yeah yeah we've all had a few of those unfortunately but yes. nevertheless okay everybody so leave the drama at home don't bring it to your workplace or perhaps vice versa as well don't bring your workplace drama to your other places of life for that matter love it leave the drama on the stage for the divas <laughs> all right then so we were just sort of talking a little bit about places where we might make mistakes, like mm -hmm. hitting that send button a few moments too early before you've had a chance to cool down and revise, revise, revise. What's another example of a communications related mistake that you've made? If you could have a do over, what would it sound like? So I, I won't give you the name of this show, but recently now I've been at the man 13 years and I've never once. This is the first time it happened. And I do a lot of on stage welcomes and announces and a lot of that stuff. And I love it. It's great. I did not look at a production calendar when I came into the venue mm. because I had talked to a staff member earlier and I said, okay, just remind me what time's tonight's show? And they said 7.30. So that's what I had in the brain. So I like to be out with our audience beforehand, down in our donor area, connecting with patrons and et cetera, et cetera. So I was out in the house and it was about 7.05 and I'm thinking, you know what? I need to head backstage shortly because then I have to really get my head in the game and just focus and who am I dealing with and just get. And our production assistant came out with a look on her face with the headset. And I looked at her, I said, uh, what's up? They said, they need you backstage. So the curtain was seven o'clock. Oops, not 7.30. And that was my fault for not looking at the production schedule and listening to somebody else. Because I always look, but I didn't this day. For whatever reason, too many things on my mind. I held the show for four minutes. Because they never start on time, by the way. It's always 7.05, 7.08, but whatever in this case. But I held the show for four minutes. I've never done that in my life. Mm. And when I saw this long line of people, because there were a lot of speakers, I was like, oh, my goodness yes and i did not have my head on straight i have to tell you so i was like go out on stage and then i had to like shift into gear and get in the mindset and figure out what i and it was not one of my better performances i mean i probably nobody knew better because it was probably harmless and fine but i knew better and i felt really uncomfortable and i've said to the production director i said i've never missed ever being on stage well in advance in time for when i have to go out she goes you've never missed a one we thought something must have happened i said yeah i got the wrong time my fault owner. So yeah, that was not a good one. No, I can imagine that getting the adrenaline up just a tad. Well, and it sent a disrespectful message to the other people lined up backstage. Like, you know, where is she? Right. And mm, that's not my MO and that's not who I am. So that was really a, a a difficult moment for me. So I'm curious when you have that kind of moment and you realize that, of course, this is unintentional. And this is where in, in certain contexts, it can have a lot more damage as a repercussion, but recognizing the, the two sides of that coin of intention versus impact, right? And you may recognizing on the one hand, if someone does you a 
disservice or appears to do disrespect, et cetera, that the impact is done. And but to be gracious and recognize what was their intention. But also, if you've unintentionally hurt somebody, it's one thing to say, well, I didn't mean to, but nevertheless, taking responsibility for what you have done, regardless of intention, right? That being generous on both sides of that. So to your point, you've just unintentionally disrespected the rest of the, the speakers, well, everybody else, yeah. basically. The, and so how did you make amends with that? Did you address them after the fact? Did you, yeah. what happened? So different people were speaking and leaving. So I, you know, there were probably four people I needed to really speak to. So I made a point of trying to find each one of them and one I didn't. So I called and they had just left. And I said, I'm so sorry I didn't get a chance to say good night and great evening and terrific show. And I just want to apologize to you for being a few minutes late on stage. That was not my intention. I had the wrong time and it was my fault. And they were like, oh, no problem. But, you know, I knew that I needed to recognize and own it and let them know that I owned it. And we all moved on from there. But it wasn't okay just to walk off and not address it. Right. I think it's smart at that point to just get ahead of that. As soon as you realize there's a problem, put the fire out exactly as fast as possible, because regardless of the discomfort, it's only going to get worse. Correct. And to let it simmer is just going to get uglier as time goes by. Right. And it's not a reputation I want to, you know, have out there that, you know, she can't be bothered to be on time or whatever, because that's so not who I am. So, yeah. Right. Right. So getting ahead of those things, when in doubt, just hold your nose, jump in. Fall on the sword. I have fallen on the sword many times. I've got plenty of battle scars to, to show that, but that's what you do. You own it. Yeah. And fortunately, it sounds like that one was more like a paper cut than a sword impaling of sorts. So, you know, but it was more recent and it was not good. Sure. And it's funny when, when you have those kinds of mistakes, it's one thing if you do them early in your career versus later in your career. Early on, it's kind of you never like it in the moment that it's happening. But at least you can look back and say, well, it was back in the day. And OK, I was young and I didn't realize it. And it's just almost in some ways feels worse when it's later on because you're going home for heaven's sake. It's such a rookie mistake. Right. Oh, you know better. Yeah, I know better. What are you talking about? You didn't look at the calendar because it's posted. You all you had to do. You do it every night religiously and you didn't do it. Like, what was that about? So believe me, I'm not going to not walk in there and not look at the calendar now, again. Ever now again. you walk into Catherine's office and there's, <gasps> there's calendars and schedules plastered everywhere. There's one in the bathroom. There's one in the refrigerator. <laughs> there's one yeah. no matter where you go. You are not going to ever miss that uh -huh. again. Yeah. No, you know, the show must go on and I held it up. So not okay. Now, that was a quick fix to the extent of at least acknowledging the challenge. Is there an example you can share of a time when you had to share bad news or initiate a difficult conversation? And, and how'd you handle it? Oh, how many hours do you have? Yeah, because um, conflict is something that we all have to face. And sometimes it's those oops moments and sometimes it's a little harder. So I'm going to go back a little bit in my career when I was the general manager of the New York Philharmonic at Lincoln Center. And a big part of my job was international touring. The mm -hmm. orchestra toured every year. This was my last year with the orchestra at the time, and it was my last concert, ironically, and it was the New York Philharmonic performing at the Great Hall in Tiananmen Square in China. Mm. Now, our music director at the time was a very disciplined German maestro who had a lot of expectations about concert decorum, both on the stage and in the audience. And coming from his world, it made total sense. Well, Philharmonic hadn't played the Great Hall, the People's Great Hall in China, and didn't have really any experience there. And a few months prior, another major orchestra had performed there. And I was talking with my counterpart to better understand what we were walking into. There were a lot of unknowns. And she was telling me that, well, you know, thousands of people come into the People's Hall. And then these, this is the late, late 80s, late 90s, excuse me. They bring their chickens. <laughs> people were coming to the concert with their chickens. Now, let's, yes, let's clarify chickens. that chickens as in like barnyard 
pets, barnyard chicken, not pets. as in KFC in a bucket. No. Well, because look, we eat at the man center. It's great to have the picnic on the green, but that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, no, no, no chicken McNuggets. No, we're talking about live chickens in their baskets in their cages. And this is in the late nineties. These concerts were for some of the people. Now that was an unusual learning. And so I was just trying to get a list of everything else that we had to encounter. And I had to go and sit with our maestro a couple of days before and start saying, okay, here's what I'm learning. This is what we can experience. Here's what we don't know is going to happen. A lot of unknowns. But I did forewarn him about the chickens and that just when normally in concert etiquette and Western classical music, when the maestro walks out, the audience gets quiet. Well, that's not going to happen either. They're going to keep talking and you're going to experience a difficult situation and it's not going to be the norm. So we went through all that. Too unhappy. I knew it wasn't going to be good, but did the best I could. So sure enough, concertmaster comes out, tunes the orchestra. It's still pretty noisy out there, lots of noise, and sits down. And then, thinking it's going to get quiet or doesn't, the maestro walks out, stands up on the podium. No change in the house. Still lots and lots of cackling and noise, and people. It just it was just the culture, and not a good thing, not a bad thing. It was just not what he or the orchestra is accustomed to. And he stood there for a very long time. And if you've ever been to a concert where the maestro is standing there with his back to you and the baton down by his side and not moving, it can be an incredibly long pregnant pause. Mm. Well, it became really long, 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 long. And finally, after what seemed like an eternity, he walked off the stage. And I'm like, oh, no, we're going to have an international incident here. He's not going to want to conduct. And what are we going to do? And this is Tiananmen Square. And this is the Great Hall of People and sponsors and relationships and politics and diplomatic blah 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 so i'm like backstage and i'm like oh my god he's coming off the stage here he comes what are we going to do by the way the audience didn't get any quieter (laughs) thought okay well maybe that'll do it right nope so finally after a few more minutes he realized it's not going to get any quieter Mm -hmm. and he had a decision to make and i remember standing there and i looked at him and i I really really hope that i was hoping that he would just say okay i'm going to put on my big boy pants. I'm just going to go out there and deal with it. And that's exactly what he did. Right. But those moments when he didn't want to go back out, which I could tell for a while, felt like mm, we are in trouble here, people. And it wasn't like I could call the assistant conductor in and say, okay, now because the maestro walked off the stage, you better conduct. Right. So there wasn't a plan B in this one. Right. There really wasn't. So mm. that was probably one of the more challenging conversations I've ever had to have to tell him to be prepared that there'll be chickens in the audience and they're not going to get quiet and please don't leave the stage. Yes, truly the show must go on. So that probably is one of those that'll go in my memoir at some point when I write it. <laughs> and this goes right back to your original point about knowing your audience, quite literally, <laughs> literally, literally in this <laughs> and the world of intercultural communications and understanding what is or isn't respectful or disrespectful and how to interpret what you hear, what you see, certain behaviors and all of those pieces. Uh, what you just tied up about 75 different points that I end up teaching and coaching about all in one story. And gosh, there's so much in there. And I wish we had time to share more. But we are coming to the close, unfortunately, of our conversation today. So I want to ask you one last question. And this is some advice to the future, Mm -hmm. advice to future generations. Mm. If you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give the graduates, whether or not they're going to college, regardless of majors and careers? What's the one thing they need to do to be successful? It's my mantra. Follow your heart. What makes your heart sing? The money will follow. May never be as much as maybe somebody else in corporate America if you're in the nonprofit sector, but do what makes your heart sing. And life is too short. And you don't want to spend your life doing something that's not going to be meaningful and give you purpose where you can also give back to others. And I've been blessed my whole life with doing what makes my heart sing. And 
I've been around others who have been in the same boat. I've also been around people who are miserable in their jobs. And that is no way to live. That's just no way to live. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have jobs where you're going to be in a setting where you think, mm, I've done what I can here. It's time to move on. I've outgrown it. That's fine. You're all allowed to make those changes and find where we belong. And as we grow and mature and seek new challenges. But as long as you're doing what makes your heart sing in the right place at the right time, you're going to be okay. And when the challenges come, when it's time to make those changes, own it. And it's okay too. Love it. Love it. Follow your heart. Make your heart sing or at least play an instrument one way or another. But there should be music involved. I couldn't agree more. Kathy, how can people learn more about you and the Man Center? Well, just go to our website, Man Center. That's M-A-N-N-C-E-N-T-E-R. That's one long word, man with two N's, mancenter.org, O-R-G. Lots of information about the season, tons and tons of information about our history, about who we are. You can find a bit of information there about myself. We also have something really fun that we launched during the pandemic. This was the year of Pivot. We launched something called the Man Music Room. So we have a whole series of content now in our Man Music Room where I'd also direct folks to go and see what's what and come back and see us now live and in person because we are open. Love it. Love it. So you can get access to some of these fabulous performances live and virtually. So no matter where you are, you have no excuse. Go find something that'll make your heart sing at least for a few minutes worth of entertainment. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Laura, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. And we hope to see everybody at The Man this summer. Can't wait. Can't wait. And to everybody else out there, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode if you haven't done so yet. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.